you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 14 this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Galatians together. If you were with us last Lord's Day, you know that Paul is now addressing the Galatian believers to remind them that it is only through saving faith, faith in Jesus Christ alone, that we can have eternal life. And so he has put before them the example of Abraham as an example of saving faith from the Old Testament. And so last Lord's Day we looked at how saving faith rests in God's promises, not in man's obedience, man's performance. We looked at how obedience should come then as a result of faith. And so it's important that we get the order there. Works don't produce saving faith, but saving faith should produce works. That's why the great reformer Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but Faith that saves is never alone. And so as Paul's continuing now uh, to put this argument before the Galatians, he's, he's unpacking for them what saving faith truly looks like and why it must rest fully in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at verses 10 through 14. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand once more as I read this text for us. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word for us today. And it says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. If you would pray with me. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the words we just read. That your inspired word that has been used throughout the history of the church, I pray it would be used today here in our church at Bloomfield Baptist Church. And God, that you would use it to change lives and bring us all to genuine saving faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I would imagine for most of us when we were growing up and going through school, we probably didn't enjoy tests very much. Uh, my kids complain about tests, and I tell them, well, your kids one day are going to complain about tests. It's just one of those things that, that we don't tend to look forward to, and yet uh, tests do serve a purpose. Uh, what they are intended to do, or at least what they should do, is to, to gauge whether or not we're learning anything. Uh, to really be a, a measure, a, a bar to understand, is this information that's been presented, has it been received to the point where, where someone can teach others what they've been taught? Do we understand what we've been learning? Well, tests serve a purpose, of course, in education. They serve a purpose in our walk with the Lord as well. In fact, the, the Scripture says a great deal about tests. There are times when God tests His people. 
Uh, the first time we see that happen is in the book of Genesis where God tests Abraham. In fact, that's exactly what the Scripture tells us in Genesis 22.1. It said God tested Abraham. And if you remember, the test that put God put Abraham to was whether or not he'd be willing to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And that test served a great purpose in Abraham's life. It served a great purpose and the life of the people of God. It was to see whether or not Abraham genuinely believed in the things that God had taught him and called him to believe in. It was a test to see if Abraham would be faithful in response to God's faithfulness. The tests don't stop there. You can see, for example, in Judges chapter 3, verse 4, that the Lord tested Israel to see, to know, I should say, whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. This is the type of testing we see consistently in the Old Testament where God gives His law, gives His commandments to His people, but then He will test them to see, do they really believe this? Have they been listening? Do they understand what I've put before them? Those tests continue into the New Testament. In fact, we see that God's testing us is a good thing. It produces good things. James says it this way in James chapter 1, verses 2-4. through Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what we see here is that when God tests us, it has a purpose to, to grow us and to mature us in our faith. Even in the midst of trials and suffering, God is using that for His glory, using that to grow us in sanctification, where we become more and more like Jesus. So when God tests us, that's a good thing. But the Scripture also tells us there's a bad kind of testing, and that's when we test God. <laughs> So, so it's good for God to test us. It, it is bad for us to test God. And this is what God's people did, specifically during that time in the Exodus when they were in the wilderness. They, they sought to test God over and over and over again. And that's what's then cited throughout the Scripture as an example of what we should not do. For example, the psalmist says it this way in Psalm 78, verse 40. How often they, referring to the Israelites during the Exodus, how often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness, and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. This was an example of how God's people, that they rebelled against God by testing Him. We see that Jesus says that we should not do this. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness, that's where Jesus is tempted by Satan. Jesus responds to Satan by saying this, Matthew 4, 7, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Jesus here is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 18, where it is referring to God's people in the wilderness, and it's showing how in the wilderness God's people failed because they put Him to a test. And now Jesus in the wilderness, He succeeded where the people failed by not testing God. And by reminding us we should not put God to the test. That is a bad thing. When God tests us, that is a good thing. But there's other testing we see in the Scripture. For example, we see in the Scripture that God calls us to test ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 
And so what Paul is saying there in 2 Corinthians is, it is a good thing when God tests us. It's a bad thing when we test God. But, but it's a good thing for us to test ourselves. It's good for us to examine ourselves, to see if our faith is truly genuine. And friends, now more than ever, we need this kind of test. There are so many people in our world today, there are so many people in pews and churches today who, who profess to be Christians. But upon further examination, they may not have saving faith. And the Scripture calls us to avoid that by examining ourselves, testing ourselves to see, do I have genuine saving faith? And we are to take this test every Lord's day. Every time we hear the Word of God proclaimed, that's a test. And not that you're going to have to take a test today and fill out, okay, what was Pastor Richard's you know, third point, second thing he said under it. But, but you're to test yourself in that as you hear the Scripture proclaimed, to ask yourself, do I really have saving faith? Do I really believe what the Word of God teaches here? And so today, I want us to take a test. And I want us to test ourselves along that line, that very question, do I have, do you have saving faith? How do we know this? Well, I believe that as we walk through this passage, it will become clearer. And so here's the first question on our test today. Do you believe that good people go to heaven? Do good people go to heaven? Now, I ask this question because the overwhelming majority of the people in our country believe this very thing. In fact, I saw not long ago there was a, a Pew Research Center study that asked the very question, do you believe that good people go to heaven? 72% of Americans said that heaven is a place, quote, where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. So that means three out of the four people that you walk by every day in our community, in our culture, in our nation, they believe that entrance into heaven is based on whether or not I do good things or bad things. And if I do enough good things to outweigh my bad things, then I'll be eternally rewarded by going to heaven. And if you haven't seen this, then you can just by asking people questions about the gospel. In fact, I've seen this time and time again as I've entered into witnessing and evangelistic conversations. I have shared before that one of the strategies I use when I talk to people about the Lord and about the gospel is uh, something I was taught decades ago. Evangelism explosion was the, the, the material. It came out of a church in Florida. Uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy is who put it together. And so we actually, we refer to these as the Kennedy questions. And one of the Kennedy questions is this. If your life were to end today and you stood before God, and he asked, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And friends, I've had the opportunity to ask that question literally thousands of times all over the world. And consistently, the answer that I get is one based on works and deeds. People will usually say something along the lines of, well, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to be a good person. Well, well, I think that my good outweighs my bad. And when they say that, it helps me to understand what it is they are trusting in for their salvation. They're trusting in their works. This is the predominant belief in our culture. So what does the Scripture say about this? Well, look at verse 10 again. Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That word works is deeds. It could be translated essentially those who are trusting in good works, good deeds, are under a curse. That that word curse means they're under the divine judgment of God that brings a sentence of condemnation. Paul goes on then to quote Deuteronomy 27-26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What Paul is saying here is if you are trusting in good deeds, good works, you need to realize you're not earning salvation. No, rather, you are under a curse of the law. Well, what does that mean? He's saying that God gave us the law, among other reasons, to show us our unrighteousness, to show us our need for Christ. The law then helps us to see what sinners we are. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. He said this, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law helps us to know we're sinners. I've used this illustration a hundred times. You're driving down the road. You're going 55. All of a sudden you see the speed limit sign. It says 35. Which pedal do you hit? Especially if there's a police car sitting there. You hit the brake. Why? Because you realize that the posted law then helps you to see you're a transgressor. God's Word, when we open it up, helps us to see we're a transgressor. The problem for many of us is, is we're just cruising through life and we are ignorant of what God's Word says. And in our sin, ignorance is bliss. We don't want conviction. We don't want to be told what not to do. And yet, Paul here reminds us that if we are trusting in our good deeds, our good works, what we're doing is we're saying, well, I'm trusting in the law, and I'm trusting that I can perfectly follow the law. And Paul makes it clear that none of us has or none of us can perfectly follow the law. And we know this, don't we? I mean, that question that I've asked so many times about what would you say if you stood before God, I've yet to have one person say to me, well, I would tell God I've lived a perfect life. I would tell God I've been absolutely perfect. I'd tell God that I'd never sinned in my whole life. I've never had anyone say that to me. Everyone knows. If they've never been to a church in their life, if they've never opened up God's Word in their life, everybody knows deep down they've done something wrong. And that's where the problem is. And Paul is pointing this out by saying, if you're trusting in your works to save you, well, you better be perfect in your works. Because if you're not, you're under the curse of the law. What is that curse? Romans 6.23 makes it clear. The wages of sin is death. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin. And so Paul makes it clear here. Listen, you, if you think you're going to achieve righteousness based on good deeds, hear this. Verse 11. It's now evident that no one's justified before God by the law. And so, Paul just paints with a, a wide stroke there and says, okay, least you have this error in your thinking, there's no one who's perfect, no one who's going to be justified by God, before the law, by God by the law. And then he says, this is how we're justified. The righteous shall live by faith. And the law's not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, if you live by the law, you're going to die by the law. And unless you're perfect, you're going to be condemned by God because of the law. But you can live a different way. You can trust in God by faith. 
You can receive righteousness through Jesus Christ by faith. And this isn't just the message of the New Testament, it's the message of the Old Testament. That's why Paul here quotes Habakkuk 2.4 and Leviticus 18.5, particularly Habakkuk 2.4, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a very clear passage that says, listen, we, we don't live by works, we don't trust in works, we trust in God through faith and by faith. And yet it's very difficult to grasp this. Most of us have this, this internal gravitational pull towards works. Most of us in the back of our mind somewhere, we still operate day-to-day based on works. We think ourselves better than others. If we mess up, we usually can find somebody who's messed up worse and compare ourselves to them. <laughs> but then we feel a little bit better about ourselves. Why? Because we, we have this works-oriented thought process so often. It's hard for us to hear the gospel which says we're saved through faith in Christ and Christ alone. This was a particular struggle, by the way, for the reformer Martin Luther before he came to faith in Christ. If you know Luther's testimony, he had uh, committed himself to the monastery to become a monk. He, He very much thought that he could achieve righteousness based on his works, and yet he knew as he read the Scripture that he was not a righteous man, and so he was very conflicted. He was very angry at God. He felt God had given him an impossible standard to meet and there's no way he could meet that standard. And so he was constantly convicted to the point he had severe depression and illness. And at one point he's laid there in a hospital bed in Italy. He began to remember this passage, Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And he repeated it over and over and over again. But it just didn't penetrate his heart. He, He didn't understand what it said. And so as soon as he got better and got out of that hospital bed, he went to Rome at that time. Uh, the Catholic Church's practice was to sell indulgences. Indulgences were things you could purchase in order to be forgiven of your sin or so that someone else could be forgiven of their sin. And so Luther had, had bought into this unbiblical practice. And so on this particular day there in Rome, at one of the largest churches there, there was a large series of steps. And the Pope at that time was offering this special indulgence, which could just do so much more than the other indulgences. And so Luther bought it, and he began to do what other pilgrims were doing. He started ascending those steps, and as he did, he would bow at each step, he would say a prayer, he would kiss the step, he'd go to the next one. The thought was, this will achieve righteousness for me. This is the means by which I'll be saved. I will climb these stairs and I will say these prayers and I'll be right with God. And by the time he got halfway up those stairs, the Holy Spirit worked on him. He began to understand for the first time the truth of Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. And in that moment, he stood up, he walked down those steps, he went to Wittenberg, and he began to dedicate his life towards studying the truth of the Scripture which teaches we are made right with God through faith in Christ and Christ alone. He would later write this about Habakkuk 2.4. Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with Him. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the righteous shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. And I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Friends, have those words broken through your heart? Do good people go to heaven? The answer from Scripture is... No, they don't. 
The answer from Scripture is anyone depending on their good deeds or good works is under a curse. Good people are sinful people, and sinful people deserve God's wrath. And there's no amount of good we can do that's going to make us perfect. Our righteousness is not based on how good we are. In fact, the Scripture says nobody's really a good person no matter how good you think you are. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, not one. Again, the question is, if you were to stand before God and He asked, why should I let you into heaven? How many of you would say, because I've been a perfect person? Does anybody want to make that argument this morning? If you have a family member here, I'm sure they can refute that for you pretty quickly. I can get my kids out of preschool worship back there. They can tell you, I'm not a perfect person. How foolish is it for us to think that we will go to heaven based on our good works when the Scripture says the exact opposite. The Scripture says that we inherit eternal life through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so if you believe that it is your good works that will save you or someone else's good works that are going to save them, you are not trusting in saving faith. You are not trusting in Christ and Christ alone. That's the first question on the test. Which leads us to the second one then. Is Jesus the only way to God? According to another study that I read recently, 65% of American Christians, so this is people in our country who profess to be Christians, 65% of American Christians say that many religions can lead to God. When asked the question among American Christians of how many of them believe that Jesus was the only way to God, less than 17% said, I believe that Jesus is the only way. That means that over 80% of them thought, well, there is at least some other way. And 65% of them thought, well, there's a lot of other ways. And usually what the motivating factor in this type of response is, is, but people are so sincere. And so the thought is, well, I'm a Christian and there's something else. But when I look at them, I mean, they're just so sincere about their faith. And so I'm sure God has a special place for them because they're just so sincere i first encountered this as a fairly young christian as i've shared before i became a christian my freshman year of college soon after that i had the opportunity to spend a summer in eastern europe uh, as a missionary and so to do this i had to raise money and particularly i was going to slovakia this was the summer of 1993 uh, at the time, Slovakia was a, a fairly new country. They had declared their independence in January of 1993. Uh, communism had fallen in 1989. Uh, this was significant because when communism fell, when the country declared its independence, all types of groups flocked in. Everybody with a message, everybody with something to sell, they all flocked in at the same time, which was very confusing because you had a place that was very close to the gospel, and now you had people coming in with the gospel, but also with lots of false gospels. And so I remember on one occasion sitting down with a good friend of mine's parents. These were professing Christians. They were some of the nicest people I'd ever known, and I was talking to them about my trip, and I was asking them to financially help with the trip. And that conversation went well until I made this statement. 
I said one of the reasons it's so urgent that our team go this summer is because lots of false gospels and false teachers have flooded into Slovakia. And as I began to mention those, I mentioned the Mormon church. And as soon as I mentioned the Mormon church, this father kind of sat up straight and looked at me and said, well, wait, let me just stop you right there. Now, he did not debate me on what Mormonism taught versus what biblical Christianity taught. He would have lost that debate. You will too. That they're not the same. They're not even close to the same. They don't believe in the same Christ, the same God. It's a false gospel. It's from hell. I'll debate all day long on that. But that's not the debate he wanted to have. This was the debate. I work with a couple of Mormons, and they're the most sincere people I've ever met. They are so sincere in their faith. I don't think there's a problem because they're so sincere. This is what is ingrained in so many of us. Who am I to say this religion is wrong because they're so sincere? Sincerity must equal some type of security and salvation. So let's argue that for a minute. If sincerity to one's faith equals salvation, then the 9-11 terrorists are in paradise. It doesn't get more devout than giving up your life for what you believe in. Those men who drove those planes into those towers were sincere about their faith and were devout about their faith. If sincerity equals salvation and security, then they're in paradise. We're coming up in November on the 40th anniversary of the Jim Jones massacre. For those of you not familiar with that, it was in 1978, November. There was a man named Jim Jones. He had a lot of false teachings. He had formed a group called the People's Temple. He had moved them to a different country, different location. He led 918 of his followers to a mass murder-suicide by which they drank Kool-Aid that was tainted with poison. And including him, 918 people died. Over 300 of them were children. If sincerity of faith equals salvation and security in salvation, then Jim Jones is in heaven right now because he was sincere and he was devout. But friends, I don't think many of us this morning are going to argue that the 9-11 terrorists are in paradise or that Jim Jones is in heaven because what these people did were wicked, satanic, evil things. But they were sincere. You can be sincere about the wrong thing. We cannot make the argument or fall into the belief that just because a person is sincere, that that means they are saved. Sincere faith doesn't save anyone. The issue is, what is the object of your faith? Notice what Paul writes here, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now why is this significant? It's significant because Jesus made an exclusive statement about Himself in John 14.6. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Friends, that settles it once and for all. We either believe the words of Christ or we deny the words of Christ, but we cannot believe the words of Christ and then over here say, but if someone's sincere enough. Again, you can be sincerely wrong. Jesus makes that statement and then it is backed up by what? By the crucifixion. That's why Paul here says there's a curse. Everyone who's trusting in good deeds, they're under a curse. But notice what Christ has done. Christ redeemed us. 
That that word in the Greek means someone is purchased back from slavery. The Scripture says we were slaves to sin. Christ came in and paid our price and He redeemed us out of our slavery. And how did He do that? The Scripture says He did it by becoming a curse for us. The curse of the law is that the law demands punishment for anyone who can't perfectly obey the law. We cannot perfectly obey it, therefore we are under the curse of the law. Jesus perfectly obeyed. God's people in the wilderness test Him, they disobey. Jesus in the wilderness does what? He perfectly obeys the Father. In fact, the Scripture points out the obedience of Christ in this way and says He was obedient to the point of the cross. He was perfectly obedient all His life. So, so there was no curse on him, and yet he became a curse for you and I. Paul here quotes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, which says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, in ancient Judaism, when a criminal was executed, which was usually by stoning to death, they then took their body and they hung it on a tree, on a post, on a wooden pole of some sort. And the reason they did that was to publicly declare to others, to illustrate to others, this person has been rejected by God. In fact, they would leave them on that post until sunset. Is a way of saying as the sun goes down, God has turned His back on this person. He has rejected them. It wasn't their curse that led to their execution, but because they have been executed and now they're hanging on that tree, it is because they are now becoming a curse before God. Jesus doesn't become a curse because He's crucified. He's crucified because He becomes a curse on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says it this way, He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you've been healed. The question is, is Jesus the only way to God? And friends, the overwhelming response from Scripture is yes. Jesus is the only way. Because Jesus is the only one who deals with the curse of the law. Muhammad did not die for you. Buddha did not die for you. Joseph Smith did not die for you. Jesus Christ died in your place and in mine that we might receive the righteousness of God. And we receive that when we trust in Him and in Him alone. It doesn't matter how sincerely faithful you are. If you're faithful about the wrong thing, it is the object of your faith that is significant. And so friend, if the object of your faith is not Jesus, then you don't have saving faith. And if the object of anyone's faith is not Jesus, they do not have saving faith. Question three, true or false? These are always my favorite. You get a 50-50 here. True or false? The stronger my faith, the more I will experience God's blessing. I have heard statements like this over and over again. I usually hear them when I turn on the TV to the religious channel and there's what I would call a prosperity preacher on there, and there's usually some form of this teaching that if you just exercise more faith, you'll receive more of God's blessing. In fact, in uh, my wife's van, we've got the, the XM radio there, and I'm going through the dial, and I came across one of these prosperity preachers. They've got their own channel, 24-7. This is what they said. It is our faith 
that activates the power of God. Just think about that statement for a second. It, it is our faith that activates the power of God. Now, who's the puppet and who's pulling the strings there? It is our faith that activates the power of God. God is there in heaven, but He is powerless to do anything if we don't first exercise our faith. We've got to pull the strings. We've got to exercise the faith. We've got to plant that seed of faith, is what's often said, which coincidentally comes through a check or a debit card. I went to that Prosperity Preacher's website, didn't have anything better to do, and thought I'd get madder. And these are some of the articles listed. Set the blessing in motion. Unlock God's blessing. Plant a seed and secure God's blessing. Friends, is this what the Scripture says about the blessing of God? Notice what Paul says here. Verse 14. He has something to say about blessing. So that in Christ Jesus, so here's the argument he's made. Our deeds curse us. Jesus takes on that curse for us. That, that, that we might receive righteousness. And then, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And Paul's going back here to the passage we looked at last week, verse 8, where he says, God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so now, Paul is talking about that blessing. He's referring to how the gospel is preached to Abraham, through Abraham, comes to the Gentiles, and now they are receiving the blessing of God. And what is that blessing? The promised spirit through faith. Receiving means to take hold of something. Not in part, but in full. You receive it. You take it. It is now yours. So what is it that we receive? What blessing do we receive when we receive the Gospel of Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone? Well, the Scripture is filled with examples. I'm going to take you to one. Just turn a couple of pages over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. What is the blessing that God has for His people? Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Not some. Not Well, He starts us out with a few and then the more faith we have, He gives us some more. No, the Scripture says that in Christ, when my faith is in Christ, what I receive, the blessing I receive is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I get it all. You get it all in Christ. And what is it? What are these spiritual blessings? Well, just walk through the passage of verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. But before you were a thought in your parents' mind, before the foundation of the world, God had chosen you, Paul says here in Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So who does the choosing? The adopter or the adoptee? We've been adopted by God. He has chosen us and brought us into His family. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Again, He purchases us, purchases us out of our slavery through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. What a blessing there. God forgives us. 
Just let that sink in for a moment. Do you understand the weight of that statement? Do you know how messed up you are? Because I know how messed up I am. And the Scripture says, for the forgiveness, not of some, not of part, but of all my trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which verse 8 says, He lavished upon us. The picture here is not of a stingy God in heaven holding on to blessing until we turn the key of faith to release it. The picture here is a benevolent God who lavishes His grace and His mercy and His blessing on us. And the problem for most of us today is we don't care about that blessing. We are so short-sighted. We're content with 80 years of health. We're content with a full bank account. We're content with those things which in the grand scheme of eternity, friend, are just a dot. They're nothing. They're minuscule. God doesn't promise in Ephesians 1 health and wealth. What does He promise? He promises forgiveness. He promises His grace, His mercy. Verse 9, He makes known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. He unlocks for us the mystery of the Gospel. His will clearly in His Word, verse 10, is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That the problem with the health and wealth Gospel, I've heard this many times, I've said it to you, the problem with the health and wealth Gospel is they're not looking healthy and wealthy enough. They're not looking towards a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more sickness and no more pain and no more cancers and no more funeral homes and no more children's hospitals. Praise God. They're done and they're over and Jesus says, it is finished. There's no more. But those who hold to that prosperity teaching, they're, they're just holding on to such a temporal thing. That's not what blessing is. God has something so much greater for us and we receive it in Christ and through Christ. So again, the test question is this, true or false, the stronger my faith, the more I'll experience God's blessing. And friend, I believe the overwhelming teaching of Scripture is that is a false statement. God's blessing is based on the object of our faith, not the strength of it. Here's good news this morning. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, the weakest faith gets the same strong Christ as does the strongest faith. Amen. You come in here this morning and you're struggling. Your, your faith's weak. Maybe on the outside you've dressed it up, things look fine. You know, the, the common answers, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. We're all liars, but that's what we say when we come to church. And inside you're struggling. And you're barely able to come here. Maybe you can't even open up the Bible right now. And maybe you look at what you thought would happen and how you thought this was going to work. If, if I do this, God will do this. And then you find disappointment and trial and suffering and you look at the pain and heartache in your life and in other people's life and you start to ask the questions, God, why, 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 why? And maybe a faith you once considered strong it's so desperately weak right now. Here's the good news. You've got the same strong Jesus. 
as the person who has the strongest faith in this room. Christ does not base his salvation, our salvation. He does not bless our blessing, base our blessing on how strong our faith is. We don't get more of it or less of it. We get the fullness of the riches of his grace and his mercy and his blessing. When we take, what does he say? A mustard seed of faith. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? I'm guessing they're really small. It's this tiny little thing. It's this smidget of faith. But the good news of the Gospel is, friend, that's all you need because our salvation is not based in us. It's based in Him. And if He is the object of your faith today, no matter how weak that faith is, you've got the right object. And maybe you struggle with sincerity, but you've got the right object. You're looking to Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And friends, if you will set your eyes on Him, There's nothing this world can do to take away from you the riches of His blessing. This was something that John Bunyan knew well. You may know that name because Bunyan was a 17th century preacher and writer. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most read works in the world today. One of the most circulated works in the world today. He wrote that, you may know. What you may not know is that he wrote it when he was in prison. He was in prison for his faith, for preaching the gospel. He held firmly to the teachings of Galatians, particularly Galatians 3, in a religious culture of his day, which said, no, it's by the stairs and the prayers that you're saved. And that religious culture controlled the law of that day. And as a result of that, because Bunyan spoke out against it and spoke the true gospel of grace, he was in prison for his faith. But oh, how he loved the book of Galatians. In fact, he once said that aside from the Bible, that his favorite work, his favorite reading was Martin Luther's commentary on this book. Bunyan knew salvation by grace through faith alone, and he preached it. And as a result, he was in prison for it. The longest prison stint he had was 12 years. Now think about this for a moment. A preacher in the 17th century, weren't a lot of prosperity gospel guys around back then, living very meager, had a wife and four children. One of his children was blind. He goes to prison for preaching the gospel. He's given the opportunity to be released from prison if he'll just recant. If he'll just say he doesn't believe this gospel. But he's turned firmly on the gospel of grace and as a result, there in prison he stayed a number of times, the longest for 12 years. But listen to what he wrote during that prison stint. I am indeed in prison now in body, but my mind is free to study Christ and how unto me He is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirits tame nor tie up God from me. My faith and hope cannot be lame. Above them I shall be. What Bunyan knew was saving faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, do you know that today? Because if you do, there's nothing in this world that can lock you up or chain you down. You have been given the riches of the glory of His grace. You have been given saving faith. Do you know that saving faith today? How have you done on this test today? Do you find that perhaps your faith is not what it should be? 
Not a weak faith, but a misplaced faith. Do you find that you've bought into the culture and this thought will know if I'm just good enough? This thought that, well, surely there must be another way. This thought that if I just try harder, God will bless me more. Then friends, if that is where you are, you don't have saving faith. But you can. The good news of the Gospel is you don't have to mount a bunch of stairs today. You don't have to say a bunch of prayers today. You don't have to buy indulgences today. You can call out to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and say, I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I confess Him as Lord of my life. And if you will do that according to Romans 10, you will be saved. God's Word says today is the day of salvation, friend. And I pray that's the case for you. If you would stand together as I pray for us now. Father God, I do pray that the truth of Your Word would penetrate our hearts. Lord, I know it is so common in our culture today to to rely on works and think that good people go to heaven. It's so common in our culture today to think that there's many other ways to You other than Jesus. But Lord, the teaching of Your Word is clear. And You've been so gracious to us today to give us that truth through Your Word. So Father, I pray we would respond to that gracious offer of the Gospel through repentance and faith. That we would trust in You today. And Lord, if there's any area of our life where we're not trusting in You, would You show us that now? And through the power of Your Holy Spirit, Lord, would You help us to trust in You in every way? Lord, if there's any here who's yet to call out to Christ as Lord, to confess Jesus as Lord, to to, to profess that belief that You truly raised Christ from the dead, If there's anyone here who's yet to have saving faith in Christ and in Christ alone, I pray, God, that you would do that work in them now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.